We return this morning to our series in John's Gospel after approximately two months break. And we find ourselves picking up where we left off, right at the beginning of John chapter 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer. Uh, many theologians and commentators call it the high priestly prayer. Since it's been a couple of months though, by way of review, let me remind you of the context of this prayer. It is the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus has finished celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And Judas has already gone out into the night to betray Jesus. The rest of the disciples, however, are still with Jesus in the upper room. And they have been privy thus far to an intimate conversation with Jesus in which he has been preparing them for his impending departure. And now we come, after the discourse of Jesus, to what is most often called by theologians the high priestly prayer of Jesus for his disciples. Both his disciples then, as well as the disciples which were then future. In other words, us and all the other believers who were to come throughout church history. I expect that we will take probably three weeks to explore this prayer, and today's sermon will be part one of that exploration. Jesus begins by praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Again, by way of review, there is an hour which is anticipated throughout the book of John, which is to be the climactic moment in Jesus' ministry. Hour is not used literally to mean 60 minutes. Hour is used to, to represent a moment. And there is this hour impending, hanging over, looming over the pages of John's Gospel, which is to be the climactic moment of Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding, and they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother goes and speaks to him. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, we are told again, his, that is Jesus's, hour had not yet come. And in John chapter 8, again we read, his hour had not yet come. But when we come to chapter 12, and verse 23, we read, the hour has come. And in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. We pick up on a shocking point there in chapter 12, which is also here in chapter 17. The hour, which is to be the hour of Jesus' glorification, is the same hour as the hour of his crucifixion. Thus, there is a tension within Jesus. If we go back to John chapter 12 and verse 27, we read him saying, now is my soul troubled. It's troubled because it's the, the hour of his crucifixion. First of all, just on a human level, who wants to be crucified? Second of all, Jesus knows that it's not just going to be a natural 
instance of crucifixion, the way that many Roman criminals were crucified, but hanging there upon the cross, Jesus knows that he will bear the penalty due, the punishment due, for the sins of those whom the Father had given to him. And so his soul, understandably, is troubled about that. And yet, on the other hand, according to the same verse, John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus embraces his mission. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Implicitly, no. Jesus goes on to say, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knows that it is the consummation of his mission as the Messiah, as the Christ, to go to the cross. And Jesus knows that there is a reward on the other side of the cross. Having been crucified, Jesus will, according to chapter 13 and verse 1, depart out of this world to the Father. Where, according to our passage today, in John 17 and verse 5, we are told that Jesus will be glorified in the Father's presence with the glory that He had with the Father before the world existed. Thus it is that Jesus says in chapter 14 and verse 28 that if the disciples loved Him, they would have rejoiced that He was leaving. For He was going to His Father, back into a heavenly glory. This is one sense in which the hour of Jesus' crucifixion is also the hour of His glory. The crucifixion is a means. The crucifixion is a doorway, if you will, to glory which lies behind it. Thus, the crucifixion is at the same time the, uh, something that causes Jesus' soul to be troubled, as well as being the hour of His glorification. But there is also another sense in which the crucifixion is the hour of Jesus' glory. Not only is Jesus imminently returning to the glory of heaven after the cross, but there is glory in the cross itself. Not only is Jesus' suffering on the cross something that He must pass through on the way to glory, Jesus' suffering on the cross is itself glorious. And this is the sense in which Jesus prays here in John 17 and verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The next phrase makes that clear. Jesus says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now follow my line of thinking here. The logic of this statement is that when the Father glorifies the Son in the way that the Son is asking Him to do, then the Son is going to turn around and glorify the Father right back. You see that at least? Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This implies that if the Father answers this prayer with a yes, yes, Son, I will glorify you, this implies that the glory that Christ will be glorified with is a glory that requires a third party 
beside the, besides the Father and the Son. Let me explain that. If there were no third party, this glorifying of the Son and the Son glorifying the Father would be a non-event. Because the Father already perceives the glory of the Son. And the Son already perceives the glory of the Father. Remember that the Father and the Son are co-equal, co-eternal. Before there ever was a universe, before there were angels, before there was anyone to behold God's glory, God was delighting in Himself, glorying in Himself, the Father glorying in the Son and the Spirit, the Son glorying in the Father and the Spirit. So if the glory that Christ is praying for here is glory in the eyes of the Father, and the glory that he speaks about glorifying the Father with is glory in his own eyes, then this would just be the continuation of what has been happening since eternity past. And the cross would do nothing to change it or to develop it. However, if a third party is involved... And Christ is speaking about and petitioning the Father for glory in the eyes of the third party. And then says that when you glorify me in the eyes of a third party, that that's going to result in me glorifying you in the eyes of the third party. Then that makes a lot more sense of this passage. It's as if Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in the eyes of those people that you have given to me. That I may glorify you in the eyes of these people that you have given to me. Jesus is praying that this is what will happen at the cross. That the Son will be glorified in the eyes of those whom the Father has given to the Son. In order that the Father also may be glorified in the Son. Verses 2 and 3 develop the thought further. Jesus says, since, do this, since you have given Him, that is the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, do this, glorify me in the eyes of those whom you have given to me, in order that you also may be glorified in me. And do this, since this is your plan anyway, that those you have given me would see in time and space... My glory and your glory, and that they will come to know us and believe that you have sent me and be thankful to you and glorify you and be thankful to me for coming. That they will understand that I am the one who gives life, I am the life giver. Give me that glory in their eyes, show them my glory. 
in order that they will understand my glory, and in understanding my glory, that they will see your glory. Father, this was your plan. The hour is now here to do it. Glorify me, that I may glorify you. Jesus is asking to be glorified at the cross on the next day in the eyes of those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. And He's praying on the basis of the Father's plan to do just that. This passage tells us that the Father has given the Son a people. Look at verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And the Father has appointed that they will come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. In other words, the Father has appointed that at some point they're going to see His glory. At some point they're going to perceive His glory and they're going to come to know God. They're going to come to know the Christ. So since you have appointed the Son to be or pardon me, since you have given to the Son authority over all flesh and appointed Him to be the one to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him, and since, if they're going to have eternal life, they're going to have to know Me, and they're going to have to know You, then, Father, bring all this to pass. Glorify Me tomorrow in My crucifixion. Manifest my glory as the eternal life giver. That as people perceive my glory as the eternal life giver, they will glorify you also. Who out of love in eternity past gave these people to me. As the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Glorify me so that they will know me and in knowing me, know you. And in knowing me and in knowing you, have eternal life. Since it is your plan, the hour has come now, Father. Do it. This is what's happening in verses 1 to 3 of this passage before us. And Jesus further bolsters His argument by stating... I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The agreement between the Father and the Son pertaining to the Son's Messiahship is predicated on the fulfillment of conditions on the part of the Son. You understand that if Jesus was going to save anyone, He had work to do. You realize that as R.C. Sproul said, we are saved by works. Not our works. Jesus' works. But there were works to be done. You understand that if we were to have eternal life, if those whom the Father gave to the Son were to have eternal life, the Son had to become flesh and dwell among us and accomplish the work on earth that He was given to do. And then the Son had to go to the cross and lay down His life. You realize... That this agreement 
that these people would be given to Christ and that they would receive eternal life. This was predicated on Jesus' fulfillment of conditions. What Jesus is doing here in verse 4 is pleading His own merit. Jesus is pleading the met conditions of the covenant of grace and asking the Father now on that basis to honor His end of the covenantal arrangement between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. I have done my work that you gave me to do. The hour is now here then, Father. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Verse 4 is Jesus strengthening this petition that this hour would be the hour of His glorification in the eyes of those whom the Father had given to Him. He's pleading with His Father His own merit. I have met the conditions. I think I said of the covenant of grace. What I meant to say was the covenant of redemption. That agreement between the Father and Son and Spirit concerning the redemption of those the Father gave to the Son. Jesus is saying, I have done my part of that. Father, the hour has now come for you to glorify me in the eyes of those whom you have given to me. That as they perceive my glory as the one with authority over all flesh to give eternal life, as the Lamb of God, as the High Priest, as the living water, as the true bread from heaven, as the door, as the good shepherd, as they perceive my glory, they understand I came from you and they glorify you. The hour is now here to bring this covenant of redemption, which was once somewhat abstract in eternity past, before these people whom you had given, whom the Father had given were even born. Now it's in the concrete. I have become flesh, it's as if Jesus says, and I have dwelt among them. And I have accomplished the work. We planned this. I've done my part here. And now is the time for you to bring this to consummation, Father. This is what is happening in verse 4. So initially, the glory that Jesus requests in verse 1 of this passage is not the glory which is to come after the cross as He ascends to heaven, but it's glory at and in the cross. Jesus requests that the people whom the Father has given Him be granted to perceive in the very act of Jesus' self-giving death the glory of the eternal King and Savior and of the condition-meeting Messiah. Jesus requests that the Father reveal and manifest His glory to the people whom He has given to the Son. And only now, at this juncture, after praying for that glory, does Jesus turn His attention to the glory which will come after the cross. He prays, and, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a second 
petition, you realize. What has Jesus asked for so far? Two things. Verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Second thing. And glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Everything else is argumentation. You see? But there's, there are two petitions here in these first five verses of John 17. Glorify your Son and glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's this and which shows us that he's asking for two different types of glory. He prays for that glory in and at the cross in the eyes of those whom the Father has given to him. But then he goes here and says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus isn't overlooking or omitting the glory that lays behind the cross on the other side of it. He wants that glory too. He wants to return to the Father as He said He would do. He wants to return to the heavenly splendor in which He dwelt eternally prior to the Incarnation. He wants again to be surrounded as He has been ever since they were created by the six-winged seraphim who fly with two wings and cover their feet with two wings and cover their faces with two unable to bear the sight of our God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in His unshrouded glory. Jesus wants to return to heaven not only as the co-equal, co-eternal Son of God, but as the conquering Messiah, returning home victorious from battle and take His seat at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is not overlooking or omitting that glory. And it is for that glory that He additionally prays in verse 5. But it is important that we see, as I've been trying to belabor the point, that in verses 1 to 4, Jesus understands that there is a glory in His Messiahship and in the bringing of His Messianic work to completion at the cross. It's not just about escaping the earth and returning to glory, but there's a glory in His coming to earth. Jesus' whole prayer here in John 17 is predicated on the Father's plan and in His, His part in the fulfillment of the Father's plan, fulfilling the covenantal conditions on behalf of His people. It is because the Father has a plan and because Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ has met the conditions of the covenant between He and the Father that Jesus prays for the Father to bring His plan to culmination. We'll see over the next two weeks, God willing, what this means for the people for whom Christ prays. Which in the first instance, I'll just tip my cards a little bit. Which in the first instance was the believers then. Jesus says, 
in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We're going to look at that, God willing, next week. And then in two weeks, we come to this incredible portion of Scripture where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, future tense, through their word. You know who that is, right? It's you. We'll come to that, God willing, in two weeks. But what is in view this morning is what this means for Christ Himself. That there is a plan. That the Son has fulfilled His conditions given Him by the Father. His part of the deal, so to speak, has been fulfilled. And now He pleads for Himself and in the coming weeks for His people. What's in view this morning is what his fulfillment of the conditions of the covenant of redemption mean for himself. And here's the big idea of this morning's message. The Father's plan coming to its fulfillment means the glory of Christ manifest to his people and his ascension to heavenly glory. Let me say that one more time. The Father's plan coming to its fulfillment means the glory of Christ manifest through His people and His ascension to heavenly glory. Jesus does not pray in verses 1 to 5 for things in opposition to His Father's will. Nor does Jesus pray for things which have never entered the Father's mind. He's not making suggestions that the Father has never conceived of. Jesus does not pray as one ignorant of what the Father intends. As we so often pray, we don't know what God has planned. But we just present our requests to Him, hoping that He will say yes. Jesus is not praying in this manner. Here in verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays according to the Father's will on the basis of His plan. Jesus does this throughout John 17, throughout this high priestly prayer. And we will explore what the Father's will and plan is for the people whom the Father has given to the Son. But here in verses 1 to 5, we see Jesus praying that the Father will do for Him what He has already planned and promised to do. Jesus is praying that He will now receive the glory which has been promised Him as the Messiah upon the completion of His work. After all, what had the Father planned with respect to the Messiah? But that, quote, when His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. And necessary to the Messiah seeing His offspring is His offspring seeing Him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And two verses later, we read how God has overcome this dilemma. 
God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus essentially prays then that He will be glorified by the process of the people whom the Father has given Him coming to see in Him the glory of God. So that they, having seen Him, might be His offspring and that He would see His offspring as God promised through the prophet, would be the case. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And in order for him to see his offspring, his offspring have to see him. Which means God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has to shine in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of his Son. This is what Jesus is praying for. Jesus wants those whom the Father has given Him, to perceive in the culmination of His life's work at Calvary that He is the one who, as verse 2 says, has authority over all flesh to give eternal life. And then Jesus prays in verse 5 that He will enter the heavenly glory again from whence He came. Which is exactly what the Father had promised would be the experience of the incarnate Son upon the completion of His life's work. Listen to Psalm 110 and verse 1, which speaks of David's greater Son. Remember, Jesus stumped the religious teachers because they always thought that the fathers were greater than the sons. If He's David's Son, then how is it that David can call Him Lord? How could David have a greater Son? (laughs) They They had no category for that. But Jesus is David's greater son from the line of David but no mere biological descendant this is the incarnate son of God who has taken on flesh to dwell among us for us and our salvation Psalm 1-2 says of this David's greater son the Lord said to my Lord that is David's Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies to your footstool. You see that David's greater son was promised that he could ascend and take a seat at the Father's right hand. And that everything would be put in subjection to him. The Father had promised the Son that on the completion of his messianic work, the work he did as the Messiah, that he would be seated at his right hand and that all things would be placed in subjection to him. As Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. See, he was... As the eternal Son, there's a glory that always belongs to Him. But as David's greater Son, as the human Messiah, He must complete His work in order to have that privilege and that exalted state. And here, Jesus has taken on flesh. He's become David's greater Son. 
And he has done the work of David's greater son. And now he's praying. It's time for me to ascend. According to my divine nature to recover that glory which has always been rightfully mine. And according to my human nature to be exalted to your right hand and to have everything placed at my feet. The hour has come. Glorify me in the eyes of those whom you have given to me. And bring me to heaven to enjoy this glory that you have promised to me on the completion of my messianic word. So we see from these Old Testament passages that Jesus is praying according to the Father's will. Certainly not in opposition to it, but neither in ignorance of it or just a naive optimism, hoping that the Father will say yes. See if he can just get a little bit, little bit of glory. Might as well ask. Jesus is praying on the basis of what he knows is the Father's will. That the completion of his messianic work entails glory in the eyes of those whom the Father has given to him. And entails glory at the Father's right hand in heavenly splendor. Jesus is praying, the hour has come now. Glorify your Son with this glory and with that glory. Which are due the Messiah on the completion of his work. Now, what's the takeaway for us this morning? I will leave you with two considerations. First, I want to put the question to you. Everybody listen here, even the little children. Listen, have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ? When you look with the eyes of your heart upon the cross of Calvary for little children, that means when you think about the cross... When you think about Jesus' death, do you just see just some random guy dying? Some poor pitiful peasant needlessly wasting out his life because of his delusions of grandeur that he was just too stubborn or foolish to back off of in the face of opposition? Or do you see when you think on Calvary, when you think about Jesus dying, do you see with the eyes of faith, one with, as our passage this morning says, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given Him. Completing there at the cross His life's work. Finishing the last chapter in His magnum opus, so to speak. If you see the glory of Christ at the cross, It is because Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 1 that you would. Because the Father said, yes, I will glorify you. The hour has come. You've prayed according to my will. You've met the conditions. It is time for you to receive the glory in the eyes of those whom I have given to you. That's why you believe. That's why you see. Because Jesus prayed for you. If you don't see glory yet when you look at the cross and you're yet an unbeliever, take another look. Could it be that there's glory there that you haven't seen? That you haven't perceived? Truth is not always immediately apparent, you realize. 
One needs only to think about camouflage to understand this. Sometimes in the looking, there is more than meets the eye and you miss it at first glance. Look again at Calvary. See if you can't find some glory there. Second, when you think of Jesus now, as He is right now, do you think of Him as a mildly inspiring historical figure, memorialized in church paintings as a soft, effeminate sort of fellow whom you may safely ignore, with very little to bring to bear upon your life and very little power to help you or aid you or improve your life in any way besides maybe giving you some principle for your life like do unto others as you would have them do unto you but that's about where it stops I get a little bit of inspiration from this Jesus fellow or do you think of him as the eternal one who was in the beginning with God and was God, but as the Nicene Creed says, for us and our salvation, He came down from heaven. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is, is today seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will return. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Jesus came in humility, yes. He came as a peasant, yes. But not with delusions of grandeur, but as the most glorious being entering into the human plight to rescue us. He lived a perfect, sinless life on behalf of those whom the Father had given to Him. And after accomplishing the work that the Father gave Him to do, prayed for His own, here in John chapter 17. And then laid down his life for his own on the next day, as he said he would in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And then he rose and he ascended to the glory that he had in the presence of the Father before the world existed, where he lives forevermore, always, now, To make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. It was the Father's plan and purpose that the Son humble Himself to become obedient even to death on the cross. But afterward to be highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that He is Lord. What does it say? To the glory of the Father. Which sounds a lot like John 17 and verse 1, right? What sort of thoughts do you entertain of Jesus? Do you see glory 
when you look upon Jesus with the eyes of your heart. Little kids, that means when you think about Jesus, you think He's important and majestic and worthy of your praise and worthy of your worship. Little kids, do you think that it's a good way of living to follow Jesus and to trust Jesus and to worship Jesus? Is He important like that? That's what it means when I ask you. When you look upon Jesus with the eyes of your heart, do you see glory? It is Jesus' prayer here for His people that they behold His glory, that He receive glory in their eyes, and then that He will ascend to the glory of heaven where He will intercede for them and rule over them. Even Jesus' prayer here for His own glory is high priestly in that it is intercession. Jesus wants the glory of the completed Messiahship. And part and parcel of that glory of the completed Messiahship is those whom His Messiahship is intended to save, perceiving His glory and benefiting from His glory. Hear Jesus praying then as a glorious High Priest and behold Him each and every one of you this morning with the eyes of faith as your glorious high priest. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Lean on Him with faith and say, I want a priest like that. A glorious high priest like that. I see glory when I look at Him and I trust this glorious high priest.